I am especially excited this Christmas as we kick off a series of messages called All You'll Need. And uh, do you know what we're celebrating here at Christmas time? Do you know what the doctrine of Christmas is? If somebody were to ask you, what is Christmas all about, what would you say? Let me give you a quick thing here. Christmas is about the incarnation of God so that he could bring reconciliation for man in a nutshell. That's the doctrine of Christmas. That is, God, at a specific point in history, becomes flesh. It's a historical event. He dwells among us for a while. He lives the life that we cannot live. He dies the death that we deserve in order to bring us back to God. It is his incarnation that brings reconciliation for all human persons. Everybody understand that? There is a sense in which when you study the doctrine of Christmas, you realize that God has given us the one thing that can satisfy everything else. I was reading recently uh, with my son the old novels, uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and it puts it a certain way in the last book of the last story. It's one of the last things that you'll read. It's a little phrase that the author goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a little stable And inside that stable, there was something bigger than our whole world. Now that is an appropriate description from Lewis. Because you know what Jesus is like? Jesus is like an overflowing cup that you just can't stop. Jesus is like if you were to open a medicine chest and it was filled with everything that could ever ail you. That when you know Jesus Christ, you get answers to some of the biggest questions of your life, meeting some of the deepest needs of your heart. He is the only thing that can satisfy everything else. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look each week at some of those needs or some of those questions, and I want to look at how the doctrine of Christmas provides an answer. Today, I want to talk to you specifically about the gift of meaning and the question of meaning. Because how many know we all need meaning in life? Is that right? In fact, uh, we all need an answer to the question, why am I doing everything that I'm doing? What is my life about? Have any of you ever wondered, gosh, why am I getting up in the morning? Has anyone ever felt that it's just routine? You're going through it over and over again. Now, I can give you an example of why we all need meaning. Let's say that today after church, after this service, I were to see you, and I were to say, hey, tomorrow at 2.30, I want you to meet me at the corner of Jensen and Clovis, and you're like, well, okay, why? And I just said, well, you don't need to know why. Just meet me there. Now, I'm going to say, you're probably all very busy people, and you're doing a lot of important things. Therefore, you want to know the reason. You're saying, Shane, if I'm going to spend 30 minutes driving out to Jensen and Clovis, and I'm going to be with you for an hour, and then it's another 30 minutes driving back, that's two hours of my life. Come on, brother, give me a reason for it. Or you may not do it. And I just say to you, that's fair enough. You want a reason. And yet, if I ask most of you, what's your reason for your whole life? What's the reason that you're doing the job you're doing today? What's the reason you want to get married? What is it that you're after? When your life is over, what will you be able to say has really been done? I'm going to say many of you would not be able to really give me an answer. You want to know the reason for me to meet you and take two hours out of your life at Jensen and Clovis. You want a justification for it, but you can't justify your own life. 
Now, meaning is something that people have been after since the beginning of time when philosophers were trying to find it. They called it, and I want you to get this word. It's in your notes. They called it the logos. When they were looking for meaning, they called it the logos. And I want for you to write this down. Your logos has to do with what we've just said, the reason you exist or what you're living for. In fact, you can call your logos the rationale for life or the logic of life. It's your reason for existing, for being. And of course, you can understand the value of wanting to know that. Let me give you another example. Let's say that I went to a culture or I was in a culture that knew nothing about the modern conveniences of life. Let's say you were in that culture and I brought you a coffee maker. You'd be like, oh, this is interesting. But you knew nothing about modern conveniences. So, you know, you're like, I don't know. What do I do with it? You know, which end is up? You turn it upside down and the pieces start to fall out. You turn it back and you're like, I don't know. What do I do with this? Is this a paperweight? Is it a doorstop? Do I mix lemonade with this thing? You, you, the point, what are you trying to do in that minute? You're trying to find the logos. You're trying to find the purpose for which it's created. What's the rationale behind this thing? And until you find it, you'll admit that coffee maker is useless. You may put it, to hold, you may put it down to hold your door open, and you're not using it for what it was meant for. I'm going to say this. The ancients spent centuries trying to figure this thing out, the logos. And around the time that Jesus the Christ came on scene, the Greek philosophers truly had given up. You know what they had decided they had decided that there was no meaning to things. And they broke into a lot of different subgroups. In fact, you read about these in the book of Acts. I'd encourage you to read through Acts this holiday season. It's so incredible. But you read about what they called the Stoics and the Epicureans when they were looking for the Logos. They had given up. What did the Stoics say? The Stoics said there's no meaning in life Nothing really means anything, so the only thing to do is to be noble and to be strong, to be self-controlled, to be good people in the face of nothingness. That's what the Stoics said. And then there were the Epicureans, a different mode of thinking. The Epicureans said, well, we agree that there's nothing to life, there's no meaning to things, but the best thing to do is to go out and have a good time. Have as much fun as you can and live life. Now listen, it's in this context that John comes along and he says, no, no, no. Don't you see what your problem is? John says, you've been looking in the wrong place. You've been looking in your books. You've been looking in your minds. You've been looking into yourself humanistically for logos. But I'm gonna tell you, the logos isn't an abstract principle to be discovered. The logos is a person to be known. In fact, John comes along, and this is the scripture. You'll see it right at the top of your notes that he says. He says, don't you see, in the beginning was the, what is it? Was the logos. That's the Greek. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. The logos is not a principle. The logos is actually a person. He's a person to be known and loved and enjoyed. And by the way, he's not just any person. But notice it goes on, it says, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So he shouldn't just be enjoyed and related to. This person should be worshiped. He's the creator. Look at what it says. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now listen, friends, this is what Christmas is all about. Are you ready? Let's go on. Here it is, verse 14. It says, let's read it together. Here we go, everybody. 
And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John comes and says, no, the logos, the meaning to your life is a person you can know, a person you can see, a person you can touch. And because of that, anyone who believes in him Anyone who believes in him, the spirit of the kingdom of God, the power of the word, it comes into your life and anything is possible. That's what John's saying to the Stoics. That's what John's saying to the Epicureans. He's saying, don't you see, if you could know the word of God personally, well, then your whole life should be for him. He's the reason you're getting up in the morning. He's the one around whom you revolve your entire life. Why? Friends, why should he be the one around whom you revolve your life? Because he's not just a person. He is God. And Ephesians goes on and he says, what's the purpose of your life? Look at this. Ephesians says, in love, he predestined you for adoption to sonship of God and daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will. Who is he? Let's look at Colossians, which was already read. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, don't let that make a mistake. Don't don't think that, well, he's the firstborn. That means he was created. No, no, no. He's the firstborn over all creation, not in creation. Only the uncreated can create. Only something outside time and space can create time and space. Otherwise, it's impossible. Scientifically, it's impossible. And so you understand, we call that thing God, and God says he has revealed himself. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, read it with me, all things were created by him and for him. And if you really understand who he is, listen to me, friend, Look at me for just a minute. If you understand who Jesus the Christ is, you can't keep him on the periphery of your life. You will put him in the center. He is before all things, it says. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that everything he might have supremacy. And when you make him the center of your life, your logos, everybody say logos. He is my logos. You become acquainted with the blessing of God, of knowing him. Again, it's an overflowing cup. And then the blessings begin to come from that. Ephesians goes on and says, praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in who? The Logos. For he chose us in who? The logos before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now here's the question I just asked you right at the beginning of the day. Is Jesus your reason? Is Jesus your rationale for life? What does your life circle around? Or is he on the periphery of your life? Or is he in the center? And I just ask you to do a little bit of self-discovery because it's worth thinking about for just a minute and you begin to ask yourself questions. For example, I want you to ask yourself, well, when is it that I go to God? Do I go to God when I'm in trouble only? Or is my whole life revolved around God? 
Or here's a question. Is Jesus the main course of my life or is he just a side dish that I think about once in a while? Is Jesus the ends or is Jesus the means to the end? See, these are the questions that every person that calls themselves a believer should ask themselves. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer. In fact, maybe you're here and you've just been going to church lately and there are troubles in your life. And I just want to say from the beginning, I am glad that you're here. We live for guests around here. I'm excited you're watching online. But you're here because there's troubles in your life. And I want to say to you, do you see what you're doing? You're coming to God because you're saying, I have certain goals I want to accomplish and I want to get God's blessing to make sure he helps me because you're afraid that your goals are in jeopardy. Now I want to say to you, don't you see? If that's you, your goals are your logos. Jesus is not your logos. Your goals are at the center. Jesus is on the periphery. You're using him. And Christmas says, the doctrine of Christmas says, he is meant to be more than that. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all created things. There's nothing created that wasn't created by him. He is God. Anything that has a beginning had a beginning in him. Now that's what makes Christmas so meaningful. Verse 19 says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And now I want you to catch this. You ready? I'm giving you a lot of doctrine here at the beginning because doctrine means everything. Truth means everything here. Then he goes on and he says something fascinating. He says, and then God became dead. What does that mean? He became dead. Well, I'm going to tell you what it means at least. It reinforces the idea that God is a real God that became real flesh. Real flesh, not a hologram from heaven. He wasn't a ghost. Jesus bleeds. He sweats. He cries. He died. What does that mean? Think about Christmas. You know, I lived for a week in a foreign country uh, it was an amazing experience. I don't want to say which country it was, but I'm going to tell you the smell was bad, really bad. And I'll never forget when we got there, me and my friend, we were there, and I, we were like, dude, we will never forget this smell. We'll never not notice it. But, you know, it was just a few days before long that we didn't notice it. <laughs> we didn't notice it at all. Have you ever observed in your life that some things are huge, but because they're always there, it's amazing how the human heart has the ability to adapt to it and then not even see it anymore. Have you noticed that? Why? Because human beings have the capacity to filter it out. How people filter out smells after a while. I'm gonna tell you, people have filtered out Christmas. Because it's always there. And it's just that we don't, tend to see what it means anymore. We don't tend to smell it anymore. We don't hear it anymore. What makes it possible for us to come to a Christmas service like this, for example? Some of you are here today, and I'm preaching the gospel straight at you, and you will leave and go unchanged. How can that happen? Because well, of our human ability to adapt. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you three things, that if the baby in the manger was God, if he wasn't just a teacher... If Jesus, who is the Christ, wasn't just a guru, he's not just even a supernatural being, Jesus is not a hologram from heaven, if he is your logos and your logos is God, it's going to change your life in three ways, and I'm going give to you, give you those today. Sound good? And it's all about your meaning. 
Here's what will happen in your life when you know Jesus is your logos. Number one, write this down. You're gonna find that there is a reordering of your life. Write that down. There's a reordering. Why? Well, because Colossians says, in everything, he is to have supremacy. All of it. Have you ever noticed, do uh, we have any big guys in here like me? Big, big boys like me? No? We're online, big, big guys on our other campuses. Have you noticed when a big man goes on to ice, little thin ice, have you noticed there's an ice quake? <laughs> you ever seen that in America's Funniest Videos? I want to say this to you. Whenever Jesus Christ, if he is the beginningless creator, comes down into a person's life, there is a life quake. I always joke with you guys. How do you know an elephant's been living in your living room? How do you not notice an elephant has been living in your living room? Everything gets reordered. Now listen, if Jesus was just a guru, this is how you know you're a Christian. This is how you know if you've really come to faith in Christ. Has your life been reordered? Because if he, if he was a guru, if he was just a great man, if Jesus was just a great teacher, listen to me, even if Jesus was the genie of the lamp, there would be some limits to his control over your life, but I'm telling you, if he's God, you cannot relate to him at all and retain anything in your life that's a non-negotiable. There is no non-negotiable if he's God. Listen to me, friend. Any view that you have, any conviction of your heart, any idea, any behavior that you're involved with, any relationship that you choose to be involved with, if he's God, he has the right to change it. Now, he may not change it, but at the beginning of your relationship, you have to say, like Colossians, in everything he must have supremacy. He is God. He is your logos. Now, how many see what I'm talking about? There's a reordering. I want to ask you this. Imagine, there should be a reordering. Imagine you had a dear friend who was dying of a rare disease, and you bring this friend to a doctor, and the doctor says, you're going to be dead in a week. And he says, now I can cure you, and I can give you the remedy. There's just one thing. To keep you alive for the rest of your life, you can never eat chocolate again. Well, you're so excited. You turn to your friend and say, man, isn't this great? And your friend looks at you and says, no chocolate. Are you crazy? I'm not going to do it. You'd be to your friend, are you nuts? This is going to keep you alive for the rest of your life, and you're not going to do it because you can't have chocolate? Let me just tell you, as a pastor, I have this conversation sometimes. People will say things to me like, you know, I need something in my life, pastor. They'll say, pastor, I'm interested in Christianity, but I just have a question. I heard a rumor. I heard that you can't become a Christian if you keep having sex with everybody. <laughs> now, I just, I just want to say to people like that, that say things like that to me, I want to say there is something, with all due respect to you, there is something rationally wrong with that. There is something emotionally wrong with that, that a question like that would even pop up if he's God. Come on, if he is the God of all beauty and truth, 
If he is the God whom to know would result in all of his glory and all of his wisdom passing into you, that for endless ages you would run and not be weary, you would walk and not faint, his love, his joy, his glory would be in your life forever? If it's that guy, how can you say, gee, well, just forget it, I can't have sex until I'm married? Because listen, I want you to write this down. This is a very important point you've got to understand about the reordering of your life when it has meaning. Here it is. Write this down. You can't know the absolute God if you absolutize anything else but God. Write that down. You can't know the absolute God if you absolutize anything else but God. You can't know the absolute if you absolutize something else. Don't you see? You can't know the supreme one if anything else is supreme. Why? You may say you're serving God, but the supreme God is something else in your life. If Jesus is God, listen to me, come on. If Jesus is God, he can't just, you can't just come into your, he, he can't just come into your life to round out your life. Listen, Jesus is not a vitamin supplement. Jesus can't just be your buddy. Jesus isn't in your life to make your life a little better. No, no, no. If he's the logos, that is the doctrine of Christmas. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. You must say, God, I will give you supremacy in every area of your life. Anything your word says, I'll do. Anything your will touches, God, I'll do. Now, I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of religious people that claim Jesus, but they're not there. The penny hasn't dropped. God, I will not hinder your supremacy, and I will follow your word. You can't say to God, well, God, I love you, but don't touch that. There's got to be a life quake. One of the ways I know that a person has come to understand the doctrine of Christmas is there is such a life quake, they are broken, and they are saying, Jesus, whatever. I just want to serve you. So first, there's a reordering. If he's your logos. Second, if he's your logos, write this down. Here's what you're going to notice this Christmas. There's a relinquishing. In other words, it doesn't just mean that your life will be radically reordered. It means if God became human, it means that you will be constantly relinquishing things in your life. What do I mean? Look at these titles in Colossians. If you go back to the scripture, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of creation. The fullness of God dwells in him. You know what all this is? You know what he's describing here? Follow my logic here. What Paul is describing in Colossians is what I'd call the archetype of all adventures. What do I mean? Let me tell you what a great adventure is. A great adventure that has been written goes like this. A person is in safety. A person is in coziness. A person is in security, and then he, she, or they, they're whisked away from coziness into peril and danger. You've seen all the movies. This is the archetype of every adventure. They leave safety. They're taken away from security, from coziness, and they brave all sorts of dangers and perils for some amazing cause. Now listen to me. Christmas itself is the archetype of all adventures. Why? Because nobody left more security than Jesus left. Nobody left more safety than Jesus left. Come on, is anybody here? Nobody ever faced perils like Jesus faced. I love that word, perils. 
Nobody ever walked into the fire that Jesus walked into. Nobody ever braved the storm that he did. He paid the penalty for your sin. He faced the justice of God for sin coming down on himself. Now, I'll show you what that means. I'll show you what that means. It's so odd. This is what I find really funny about Christmas. Think about this through this season. Think about it as you celebrate. Have you noticed that Christmas has come to mean the exact opposite of what I just said? (laughs) Christmas, listen, Christmas means coziness now, doesn't it? What does Christmas mean? You ask somebody, they're going to say, oh, pastor, Christmas means chestnuts roasting over an open fire. What's Christmas mean? Oh, Christmas means Jack Frost nipping at my little nose right here, man. Christmas, what does Christmas do for you today? Christmas makes you nostalgic for a fire. Tell me I'm wrong. People are like, I have to have the coziness or it's just not Christmas. I have to, every Christmas you buy a new blanket. I have to find a fireplace. I have to find the chestnuts. Where are the chestnuts roasting? You know what's fascinating? What does the manger mean? It's the exact opposite of that. The manger means excrement instead of goose down feather pillows. The manger means rejection. The manger means Jesus Christ was willing to leave the safe and leave the secure for some great mission, some great quest. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? Do you know what the spirit and doctrine of Christmas is? Let me tell you. A Christian who is aflame with the spirit of Christmas, you know what they'll do? Maybe this is you. This means you've got it right in your heart. A Christian who says, pastor, give me some great thing to do and I'll give up everything to do it. A person who says, the last thing I want in this life is you know, just a comfortable little life. To reach my financial goals and keep my figure past 50. That's the last thing I want, my nice little life. No, a Christian who is aflame with the spirit of Christmas, don't you see? They're gonna say, look at what Jesus did for me, so I want my life to count. I wanna make a difference. A person who's, who's aflame with the spirit of Christmas will look at what the church is doing as Christmas outreaches and say, Lord Jesus, use me. They will jump in. A person who's aflame with the spirit of Christmas will say, I gotta invite a friend to church at this time because maybe they'll be open to the gospel. Why? Because they're living for a quest. They're living for a mission. They're saying, I wanna make a difference. And you know what that person says? A person who understands the doctrine of Christmas says, I expect to give things up. Is that your spirit? If it's not your spirit, I'm gonna tell you, you're not listening to Christmas. It's a smell you're not smelling anymore. It's a sound that you're not hearing anymore. Why? Look at verse 18. What does it say? It says in Colossians, he is the head of the body. Now what does that mean? Paul says he's the head of the body. Let me give you another scripture. Philippians chapter three, verse 10. Look how Paul writes. We looked at Philippians last week, if you remember. Look what Paul says. He's in prison, he's suffering, and he says, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. Okay, that's all the blessing you get. (laughs) Paul, in the book of Philippians, he's in prison, he's struggling, and he says this, I wanna know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings 
becoming like him in his death. Wow. Why did Jesus become dead? Why did Jesus leave the cozy? Why did he go on some great quest? What does it mean? It means that like Jesus, you want to get involved in people's lives. You want to share in the suffering. I expect to lose things. I told you guys last week about a family that's homeless that we're in the process of of working with. Uh, They move into their place, mobile home, on Tuesday. Praise the name of Jesus. And... uh, so be praying, be praying for them and pray that Jesus, you know, we haven't actually led him to the Lord yet. If, I mean, the, I know grandma knows Jesus, but I've been working with son. And so just be praying that God opens up the door for the gospel. If you're watching this, Anthony, I love you. I'm praying for you. <laughs> but I just say this, man. If you have the spirit of Christmas, you love to get involved in people's lives and you love to meddle. <laughs> you're pro- if you have the spirit of Christmas, you're running the enough clothing closet year-round, and you're giving up your afternoons and you're opening it up to clothe people. If you have the spirit of Christmas, you're giving toys. If you have the spirit of Christmas, you're giving your offering and your tithes because you're saying, I expect to give things up. And very often, you start helping these people, and I'm gonna tell you something. You're helping people whose lives are in extreme disorder economically, physically, socially, legally, spiritually, but you get involved with it anyway. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. It's the quest. You're saying, I want to face peril. I want to face sufferings. I want to face, it's a life of relinquishment. I give it to you, God. You know, there are some of you that you're saying, Jesus, I don't care what you do with my life, just find me a place on the front lines. If that's you, you have the spirit of Christmas. Some of you are saying, I don't expect the money that I would have if I were a non-Christian. Why? Because I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Are you out for an adventure? Or do you just come to church looking for a little inspiration? Have you found yourself saying, man, I'm going to leave that church because they're not giving me the chills like they used to? You know, they're not lifting me up. I'm going to tell you, that's not what the manger means. If this little baby is God, it will lead to a reordering. It will lead to a relinquishment. And then write this last thing down, last thing. There's gonna be a rejoicing. I want you to think about this. Ask yourself, how is it possible that Jesus Christ faced what he faced? Because Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Right toward the end of Hebrews, it says, uh, Hebrews 12, verses one through three, right toward the end, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. It goes on and it says, consider him until you do not grow weary and lose heart. What does it say? It says that Jesus scorned and despised the cross. Do you know what that means, to scorn and despise the cross? It means that with Jesus, there was no self-pity. He scorned the cross. What does it mean? He made it light. He went, yeah, there's the cross, but no big deal compared to what it's achieving. Yeah, there's the cross, but I despise the cross compared to the fact that people will be saved. See, there is a joy set before you. Giving, uh, yes, let me give because I know how it's gonna help people. Loving, yes, let me love because I know how it's gonna help people. Don't you understand? Christmas means the end of self-pity. Look at what he did. 
You have a reason to sacrifice because you're a Christian. You don't say, oh, look at my sacrifices. Look at what, no, you scorn your sacrifices. You don't complain about them. You don't mention them. What you say about your sacrifices is, eh, what is that? There's another place in Mark 10, 29, where Jesus says, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come. Do you hear that? If you're here today and you're trying to live the Christian life, I'm gonna tell you, some of you, you're going unmarried a lot longer than you thought you would. I just met with a guy for lunch two days ago who he's on the dating scene He's in his 40s, by the way. You know, if there are any ladies here, he's a good-looking dude. I could hook you up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he was telling me how challenging it is to date because uh, so many of the women aren't interested in Jesus. And if they're not interested in Jesus, he'll have nothing to do with it. He may go unmarried a lot longer than he's supposed to. That's a loss. But Jesus says, believe me, you will get your reward. Some of you, you could be making six and seven figures right now, but you decided to go into ministry instead. <laughs> or maybe it's not, maybe, maybe you're doing ministry at your workplace, but maybe you just decided in your workplace you're not gonna compromise. That's a loss. Some of you will never have respect from your families because they think you've gone off the religious deep end. That's a loss. But a Christian who understands the spirit of Christmas, they'll say, so what? They'll say, that hurts, but I'm not going to let their loss darken me. Why? Because I have a joy. What is that joy? It's Jesus, the cup that overflows. I was thinking about Jesus. I love Christmas Jesus or baby Jesus. I love all of Jesus, but I like the picture. I know you're thinking of Talladega Nights, right? I like baby Jesus. <laughs> I was holding a little baby in my arms. And I was thinking of the miracle, God in my arms, that Jesus took on full vulnerability, that whenever God showed up in the world, see, in the Old Testament, whenever God showed up in the world, he came as fire, he came as an earthquake, he came as lightning and a tornado. At Christmas, he came as a baby. Why? Where's the joy? Here's the joy. God says, I will give you myself, God in your arms, so that you could be intimate with me if you would just let me be your logos, your meaning. Do you want that? I pray you do. Let me pray for all of us. Father, thank you for every man and woman, every young man, every young woman, every child that might be here. And I pray, Jesus, that you would bring blessing to them strength to them. I pray, Father, that they would know you as Savior and as Lord. Father, we want you to be the meaning of our life. You're the reason we get up in the morning. You're the reason we exist. You're the reason we go to sleep. Our life revolves around you. We orbit around you. You are our center of gravity. Thank you, Jesus. And we commit ourselves to you. And we give you the praise and glory for your good work in our lives. Just pray this prayer with me. Maybe it's the first time you've ever prayed it before, but I'll have everybody just pray with me and just give your heart to Jesus today. Just say, I want to know you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Be my savior. Be my Lord. 
You're not just the garnish on the side. My life will orbit around you. That's how I know I'm a Christian. In Jesus' name, amen.